everybody. Good to see all of you here and those of you who are online. If this is your first time here or even if you've been here before, welcome to Thrive Church. My name is David. I serve on the pastoral staff and my prayer is that you would find something meaningful because we think, we believe that God has something meaningful for all of us each and every day, not just at Christmas time and not just on Sunday. So, so glad that you are all here and that you made it through the snow last week. So for those of you who are watching elsewhere online, uh, we actually got snow here in Oklahoma, which is actually a little unusual, at least since I've been here, uh, and we got quite a bit of it. So the fact that everybody made it and decided to come back is good news. So we're glad that uh, you all are here. Um, Of the four uh, biographies of Jesus, what we call the Gospels, of the four, there's only two of them that actually deal with the birth of Jesus, okay? Um, most of you, if you've grown up in the church, you know this, uh, and it's become familiar. You may not know exactly which, um, which book it comes from uh, or where the passage uh, lies exactly, but you know it. You've heard it before. And typically speaking, we find in the book of Matthew, um, the first uh, book of the New Testament, um, there's a birth narrative, of course, and it deals primarily with Joseph. Now, this makes a lot of sense because the author was writing to a group of Jewish people. And Jewish uh, history shows us that they were very concerned about who's your daddy, right? They want to know whose father begat who. How many of you remember the, the King James Version? And so-and-so begat. Remember that word? I still am not sure I know what it means. But begat. But anyway, the father's lineage is what's important in, in, the, in the biography of Matthew. And then if we look at the, the biography that Luke wrote to us, he's much more concerned about Mary. And this too makes some sense because Luke was not... Um, Jewish, he was Greek. And so the idea of family is very important, and, and, and so the maternal side becomes his interest. So we have these two different perspectives, uh, two different authors who are writing to do two different audiences um, about the same story. Does this make sense? So we get a richness to all of this. And those are the two. Now, Mark is really interesting. Mark... Um, well, Mark just jumps over the birth and goes right into the ministry of Jesus. And this too makes sense because it is very likely that it is Peter's gospel. Peter was an associate of a man named John Mark who actually wrote down Peter's recollection. This is the earliest book, and it's almost like Peter's like, no, 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 it's okay, yeah, yeah, he was born. Here's the deal. I'm excited about the things that he did. And so it's very action-oriented. It wouldn't make sense because... You know, Peter was kind of a blue-collar guy. He got up in the morning, he fixed his nets, he went in, he did his fishing, he came home, very action-oriented. And we find that throughout the entire Gospel of Mark. And then, and then, you have John. <laughs> yeah, John is a completely different animal altogether. Um... It's one thing that I, I don't fully understand because uh, when I was growing up, um, it was very often recommended to new Christians for them to read the Gospel of John. And I'm just going to tell you flat out, I think that's a horrible idea. 
Because John chapter 1 is so dense. <laughs> You've got to have a theology degree just to be able to parse that thing out and understand what it's, what it's saying. So I tell people, don't read John until later. Read Mark first. You know, fall in love with Jesus and the ministry that he did. You know. So if you're looking for a book to read, read Mark. That's where I would suggest. And, by the way, it's the shortest of the Gospels. So there you go, right? You can burn through it very quickly. So keep that in mind. But John, um, he's, <laughs> he's, he's different. He's, his Gospel was written much later. In fact, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it wasn't John himself who wrote it, but rather one of his disciples, a man named Irenaeus, who actually compiled all of these these writings and these stories of John into what we call the Gospel of John. And so there's a, a richer theology here. It's a little more developed. The language is a little, um, it's a little less rough, much more refined than what we find in, the, say, the Gospel of, of Mark, just as a comparison. And there's no birth story per se, but there is an origin story. Now, for those of you who uh, follow American cinema, this idea of movies related to origin stories of certain characters, or specifically superheroes, okay, there's a lot of them out there, origin stories. Well, that's kind of what we find here in the Gospel of John. It's very different, but it's there if you pay close attention to it, and of course, it's in the first chapter. So it's not gonna be easy, but I think this is gonna make sense because John does some truly beautiful things with the text, and I want to show those to you today. So let's take a look um, at John chapter 1, and I want you to see kind of what I'm talking about here. He writes in the very beginning, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. It's beautiful and poetic, isn't it? There's a certain flow to it, if you, uh, if you say it out loud. But let me ask an honest question. Does it sound a little familiar Maybe you've heard bits and pieces of that before. Like maybe in the beginning. Have you heard that somewhere else in the Bible? Like maybe Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here we, say, we see John using similar language. In the beginning was the word. And it talks about how things were made through him. How they were created. We see these images of light and dark and creation, the entire creation story, and we hear echoes of that in the first few verses of John. There's something um, called the, uh, the principle of first mention. And what happens is that a New Testament writer will often use an idea or a word or a phrase that was used previously. And what that author is trying to do is to connect the dots for you. This, what I'm writing about here, right now, this person of Jesus, this word, 
This was like that in the beginning. Yes, in the beginning, we read that in Genesis, but in the beginning was also this person, Jesus, we call the Word. This here is like that. Something big is happening here. And John connects the origin of Jesus back, I mean way back to the Old Testament, actually pre-Old Testament, if we're completely honest. Something huge is going on here. This incarnation, this birth, this Jesus, this person that I'm going to be writing about, yeah, it's like that. It's connected to that. It's connected to the origin of all creation in the universe. And here's the beautiful thing, too. In this first chapter, not only does he establish Jesus in kind of sort of a timeline, but he also begins to reveal to us the heart of God, which is so cool. The heart of God is on display here. And so let me see if I can illustrate this just a little bit more. But this time I'm going to start with the Old Testament and work my way forward. So I want you to, I want you to see this. We're actually going to go to the, the book of Exodus. We'll start in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. So you kind of know the story that Israel is in captivity in Egypt and God sends Moses and there's a big Red Sea thing and we watch it every Easter time and we hear Charlton Heston say, let my people go. Right? Which, by the way, that verse in the Bible is completely ruined for me. From now on, I can only hear Charlton Heston say that. But you know the story, and, and, and what happens is, is that God leads them to this mountain, and in at this mountain, he establishes a relationship with this people group. And I call it a covenant. But he said, here's how our relationship's going to go. And they agree to it, and he agrees to it. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And they say, yes, that's, that's what we want. And then God travels with them. Do you remember the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day? Yeah. God travels with his people. And so we're going to pick up the story in Exodus chapter 33. I want you to see this. It's very interesting. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. It's an interesting picture, isn't it? Because first of all, it had to be a pretty big tent, right? It had to be kind of a big, in fact, the term, the, uh, the ancient term is tabernacle. And uh, it was a large tent. And you could fit a lot of people in it. But this was um, a tent that Moses set up. And you have to think of it kind of, kind of this way. It wasn't a tent for sleeping, but rather it was a portable worship center or better yet, a portable throne room. That's probably the better description of it because God was going to be Lord over these people and he needed a place to be in order to meet. And so he would hold court, so to speak, with Moses in particular at the tent of meeting. Does this make sense? So think of it as kind of a portable throne room. Probably the best way to understand it. 
And Moses and God would talk. And during one of these conversations, something interesting happens. There it is, by the way, our artist's rendition of what it might look like. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So this is the conversation Moses is having with, with God. And then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. In other words, if you're not going along, we're not going. So make sure that you really want us to go and we'll go, but please come along with us because we don't, we don't want to do this without you. Which, by the way, is really good advice. Just kind of life lesson. Pro tip, right? Pro tip. If you're going to go, go with the presence of God. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. I'm pleased with you. Moses asks for more of God's presence and the Lord's response here is actually stunning. And here's the thing. This is the thing I want you to walk away with. This is the thing I want you to remember when you walk out of here today, if you you don't remember anything else, remember this. God's presence is God's pleasure. God's presence is his pleasure. I think you need to let that sink in a little bit. Because God wanted to actually be with his people. I mean, physically present with them. He wanted to encourage them and empower them and to teach them. And what I love about God is he still does this. This is the thing that is is about God. He wants those things. He wants to empower you. He wants to encourage you. He wants to teach you different things. And, And what's so fascinating about this, if you do any amount of historical study in the ancient Near East, there was no other God that wanted to be with people. All of the literature and all of the legend and all of the mythology and all of the of the conversation when it related to other ancient Near Eastern gods is that they were fickle and they would show up at really inopportune times and mess up the lives of human beings and they never really had any any interest at heart but their own. But here, Yahweh, this one, this one's different. He wants to be with his people. And even within the covenant, there are certain things that that he established, he says, not only do I want to be with you, I want to feast with you. So you didn't go and just take something to an altar and leave it there and let it rot because, well, maybe that God doesn't necessarily want to eat that thing that particular day. No, 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 no. God says, yes, there are going to be times a year we're going to feast and you're going to partake in that food and I'm going to be with you. The presence of God is his pleasure. He enjoys being with people, he enjoys being with you. Again, let that sink in. And, and furthermore, how, how encouraging do you think it, it would have been for a slave population to see the cloud at that tent? Think about that for a moment. Your ancestors, as far back as you remember, were enslaved and, and had to do work and toil and were nothing and were told that constantly. And now, 
Moses would go meet with God himself, and when the presence of God came down, you could see it. How encouraging would that be? Yeah. Now, immediately after this conversation that Moses has with God, Moses asks a very interesting question. Actually, he makes a request. He says, show me your glory. That's an audacious thing to say, don't you think? I mean, that's kind of a big deal. And, and because Moses and God were friends, he said, yes, but you can't see my face or you will surely die. So I will pass by and you can see the backside of me. And so in the story, God hides Moses in a cleft in the rock, so a small gully or something in the rock, places his hand over Moses, passes by, and then removes his hand so that Moses can actually see him. And Moses is allowed to see God's glory for himself. Amazing story, but something only that friends would do. Now, fast forward to Brother John. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? But it gets better. It gets better. Jesus was with God in the beginning. He's the word. Jesus came to his people to be with them. And those who received him became children of God. And then, and then, he made his dwelling. I love the word that's used here because it carries the idea of pitching your The word became flesh and he pitched his tent among us. Pitched his tent. I want you to think about this. The tent is no longer outside the camp. The tent is among us. It's no longer with one person, Moses, but everybody. All of humanity now has access. Oh, and by the way, Jesus showed us God's glory. He was God's glory. There's countless stories about the time where God attested to this in the life of, of Jesus and we were able to see him, not just his backside, but face to face. 
we're able to see the glory of God face to face in this person of Jesus through his ministry, through his death, his resurrection, and through his ascension. And the best part of all of this is that he didn't leave us alone, but he actually left us Holy Spirit. So we can follow him and still be with him and talk with him. (laughs) You see, in Jesus, God was pleased again to be among us. But almost more importantly now, in the Holy Spirit, God is still be uh, still uh, pleased to be among us even right now. Do you understand that? And that's God's or John's Christmas message. It might not be the birth narrative. It might not be shepherds and wise men and and um, you know a young couple and stables and stars. It might not be that. But John's Christmas message is that God has always wanted for his people to be with him, to be together with humanity, even now. And so we we celebrate a baby that came 2,000 years ago. So that God could be with you at Christmas. Let's pray. So good to us, Lord. You have threaded your heart for humanity throughout the entire scriptures. And author after author has tried to show us how much you love us and, and want to be with us. And even now, just feel that your spirit is heavy because you're once again calling out to us, ah, let's be together. And we talk about it in so many different ways. We talk about hanging out with you. We talk about connecting with you. We talk about being in your presence. But really, it's all about a heart of a God who loves his creation and his people and they're so valuable to him. Oh, God, that we would get that not just in our heads but in our hearts and start treating ourselves and the people around us like that. That you are present with us. And it's not so much that you're you're directing every single step, but you are guiding and you are empowering and you are leading. And we love that about you. And we're so grateful, God, make us sensitive to what your Holy Spirit is, is telling us and teaching us and showing us, revealing to us and Oh, God, I don't want to miss a thing. So as we go into this busy time of year and looking forward to a a great Christmas celebration, oh, God, Holy Spirit, be present with us in a way that we can't miss it. Thank you, Lord, for doing this for us, for showing us these things, for giving us your word. And not just the one that I hold in my hand, but the word that was made flesh and chose to pitch his tent with us. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.